Welcome into the Miami Herbert Huddle, a podcast all about the business of sports. I'm your host, Rich Robinson. On the show today is Jason Fox, one of the greatest Miami Hurricane football players of all time, and an entrepreneur who is trying to revolutionize the music industry. Fox grew up in Texas and had dreams of being an NFL player from when he was little. He started an astonishing 47 games on the offensive line for the Hurricanes and was primed to be a first-round draft pick. But freak injuries caused his draft stock to plummet. Injuries continued to plague his NFL career, but the story does have a happy ending. Fox has pivoted and is now at the helm of a successful startup that is making a lot of noise. Literally. When I was six years old, I told my dad I was going to I was going to play in the NFL or play for the Cowboys. And, you know, I don't know. It was just, I, I fell in love with the sport at a young age, but my mom wouldn't let me play until seventh grade. So um, that's when, that's when I started. Well, that was probably wise. I guess all the research we're learning now about young, young kids playing is probably smart to play when you start to get a little older, I guess. But yeah. Um, so when did you know, when did you first know you were good at football? Uh, my sophomore year in high school, I, I started getting a few, like the, like these envelopes that were like mass printed. And I don't know how, how many college recruiting letters those went out to, uh, it was just kind of everybody like, Hey, want to learn more, fill this out. You're on our radar. I was like, Oh, like, you know, playing in college, even though that was always a goal is it started to become a reality. And then by the end of my sophomore year, I started getting handwritten letters. So it's like, okay, this is, uh, there's a little bit more credibility behind this. So uh, I figured uh, if I'm on the right path, at least, I just need to keep getting better and keep, uh, you know, moving forward to, you know, have uh, to be able to, to be able to play college football was, which was kind of step one of making it to the NFL, kind of that goal I had in the back of my mind. So it was, so you mentioned earlier that you really wanted to play for the Cowboys. So it was that you're a sophomore and it was that calculated that, Hey, I'm going to get good at this. I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm going to go play college football and then I'm going to play in the pros. It was, it was that calculated. You know, I, I want to say yes. Um, I, I, I played every sport in the world growing up. I, I, I lettered in four sports in high school. I played basketball and, and baseball as well. And when I said, if, if, if I thought basketball or baseball would have been an easier path, I might've taken that, but I was kind of say, I, you know, I love competing. I, I will find a way to compete in anything and everything in just everyday life. And sports was kind of like that outlet for me. Um, and as much as I loved basketball and baseball and, you know, I, through shot and discus and track, you know, football seemed that, you know, this is, you know, the best I was, I was naturally, I naturally excelled at it. You know, I had a frame to play, um, you know, in college and potentially beyond. And so I thought that was, um, you know, I think that was just personally the sport I was best at. And so that was, uh, you know, kind of making, you know, early in high school and, you know, mid high school, I, I realized football was probably the best path to take. And, you know, from that moment on, especially when I got to college, it was, you know, ex, you know, do well in college to give your chance, give your chance a, a 
a chance to play at the next level into the league. So take us back to you. You're a sophomore in high school. You are like, hey, I'm pretty good at this. You're a tight end at the time, right? You're playing tight mm-hmm. end. You're pretty good. You're getting these letters, these form letters from colleges or showing interest. If you had to pick a place right then and there, where would you have gone to college, do you think, to play? Where would you have wanted so, to go? So it's kind of a funny story. I, I would have chose Miami, and I can say that uh, sincerely and wholeheartedly because – I feel like I did my own recruiting to Miami. Actually, I, we have a, have a, we had a coach, coach Burnett that really helped out too. So I don't want to take full credit, but um, you know, the first like letters I was getting froze from like uh, Louisiana Monroe and like other types of schools. And then I remember the first off first D one offer I got was Oklahoma state. And I was like, wow, you know, this is, you know, I'm going to play division one football somewhere. And, the top two places were Kansas state because that's where my entire mom's side was from. My, my entire family went to Kansas state. I grew up a, uh, a, a, you know, a K state fan, but just growing up and being a fan of football and being a fan of college football, I loved the hurricanes. I loved playing with them in the NCAA video game. I loved watching, you know, the national championships, you know, in my, during my middle school and uh, you know, early high school days and, that was the place I wanted to go. And while other programs were kind of recruiting me, I felt like I was recruiting Miami. You know, I, I picked up the phone and called them and said like, Hey, did you get the tapes? Like, I'm trying, like, what did you think? And then uh, coach Werner, he was offensive coordinator at the time and my recruiting coach, he was like, yeah, I'll call you next Monday if we decide to offer you. And Monday finally came and, I didn't hear from him. And I finally called him at like 7 p.m. at night. I was like, are you going to offer me or not? And he, I think he just kind of panicked and said yes. And so I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to come. So it, it was uh, it was a little different recruiting process because I really wanted to go to Miami. Um, and then that was and then once I committed to Miami, that's when I think that put me on the map, so to speak, and recruiting, because that's when some of the bigger schools started calling, because that was Miami at the time was the biggest school that was recruiting me, but that was where I always wanted to go deep down, so uh, I didn't really entertain those. (laughs) So uh, that's very funny. So you had to literally hunt down Coach Warner and, and, and basically force him into it. I mean, have you have you guys talked since then about that process, and what did he say was going through his mind about what the hesitation was about and why why didn't come earlier? Well, it was funny because I committed. You know, my dad told me, you know, once you commit, you know, honor your words, stay there. And that, that wasn't going to be a problem because I wanted to go to Miami. But he also wanted me to commit because, hey, in case you break your leg or something, hey, they'll honor it. So I committed pretty early in my senior year. Um, but by the time I got to Miami, Coach Werner was fired. Uh, so there was a whole different staff uh, involved and all different uh, there was a new offensive line coach there was a new coordinator there's new everything so the people that I've been talking to through the process weren't going to be there and I remember that scared a couple of the other um, you know would-be commits to Miami but uh, like I said deep down it wasn't about a coach it was about the program so I I still wanted to be a part of it so I didn't actually get to talk to him more after that. So you show up and and I'm trying to get my dates right, but that was the that was the transition period between Larry Coker and Randy Shannon, right? It was that year. 
there was, it was a year prior. So uh, I played one year for Coker and then the next year Shannon took over. So you show up as a freshman, you meet Larry Coker. He's a national championship winning coach. He was kind of a rough period there uh, towards the tail end. What was he like though? What was, what was Larry Coker like to, to be under and, and watch his process? Coker was awesome. Uh, I, I love coach Coker. Uh, you know, he recruited me as well. He came and watched me play basketball. Uh, and I think he was rooting people along when I was fouling people on the court, <laughs> but, uh, he didn't really care how many points I scored. Uh, yeah, but from, a, you know, he treated the locker room like, like grown adults, like men, and he expected you to behave that way. Uh, and obviously he had, uh, you know, a history of winning, especially his first couple seasons as head coach. And, you know, I think guys ultimately respected him for it. Um, I think, I think guys, you know, unfortunately, uh, he wasn't, um, he was so much of a player's coach. I think some guys took advantage of that, unfortunately, but I have nothing but high regards to say for coach Coker. I think he's an awesome man, awesome coach. And I'm super thankful he took a chance on me. So going back just a little bit. So you're recruited as a tight end. You are a tight end. How, but at what point on that process did you know you were going to be transitioned to O-line? When did they tell you that? Or when did you know? Uh, I think it was in the first conversation, <laughs> like, uh, you know, knowing the type of athletes that played tight end for the University of Miami, as much as I hopes as I had myself, I wasn't as athletic or could run as fast as Kellen Winslow Jr., Greg Olson, or some of these other guys. And, uh, you know, I played with Jimmy Graham, like as much as I thought I was an athlete, I, I couldn't move or run or jump like they could. So they, they basically were super upfront about it. And they're like, we want you to follow the path of Eric Winston. Eric Winston was a senior uh, the year before I got there. And they're like, we see a lot of the same in you guys. And Eric was a great mentor. He was my host and, you know, I've stayed close with him uh, since, but uh, so it, it was always uh, part of the plan. And I, I knew that and I was comfortable with it too. There wasn't very many, uh, big D one schools that still wanted me to play tight end. And if they did, I think they were lying to me. So if that's the case, did, so your senior year of high school, did you transition to be an offensive lineman then when you were in high school still? I did my senior year. I played, I played tackle. That was my first year at tackle. I think I was like 250 pounds, like soaking wet, but I kind of wanted to, jumping in, uh, you know, head first in college. But so that was, that was my first year playing tackle. And then I, you know, it was tackle ever since then. I mean, what was that first game like though? Cause I'm sure it must've been really weird just that transition period. What was that like? In high school? Yeah. That first, in high school. And I don't remember. Cause you know, so it was you know, in high school, you don't know any better and you don't like having a bad technique doesn't expose you as much as it does in college or especially in the NFL. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I honestly don't remember uh, the first game and what that was like, but I do remember the first game in college. That was, that was an experience Monday, uh, Florida state on Monday night. And, you know, I started my very first game as a true freshman and there was a quite a bit of a jump between senior year in high school to, to Monday night against Florida state. Uh, but that, that's the night I remember more often. 
<laughs> All right. So tell us about it then. That, that was obviously a big game rivalry walking in. Did you feel pretty confident in yourself? Yeah. I, confident. Yes. Nervous. Also very, <laughs> very much. So I, uh, yeah, when uh, just, I'll take that to a little bit longer. The story we, my freshman year at Miami, they recruited Ian Simonette, Orlando Franklin, Joel Figueroa, which were all top tier rivals and scout.com, you know, recruits and me, some 50, 250 pound, you know, tight end, you know, frame. These guys look like all pro. They look like, uh, the monsters from like the first space jam. Like when I got there, they were all so much bigger and stronger than me and no one really gave me a chance. And, uh, I, and like Orlando Franklin and, and, and fig and Ian, they're all great dudes loved playing with them. You know, I talked to Orlando on a regular basis and he turned out to be a heck of a player and twice the player I was in the NFL. But, um, you know, I, I remember day one of training camp, I got like two reps on like the fourth team. <laughs> like they had, I was, and I think I got beat on both of them. Like I, it wasn't very good. Um, but, you know, I was like, man, if I don't get it together here, I might not ever see the field. And by the end of training camp, the last week of training camp, you know, I ran, I ran with the ones for a little bit. And it was like the day before, it was like two days before the game on Monday night. Well, offensive line coach said, Hey, we're going to start you, which was awesome. Uh, but also super nerve wracking at the time. Cause it was like, I don't know what college football is like. I don't know what the speed of the game is like. And going up against Everett Brown ended up being a first round pick and or second round pick. And then Cameron Wimbley was also playing that game was a first round pick which was the two defensive ends I was blocking. Uh, and so I, I think I threw up like, four or five times in the locker room before the game. I was so nervous to go out there, confident, but nervous. Um, if, if you can have both of those feelings at the same time, but it was amazing running out of the smoke for the first time in the, in the orange bowl and the OB and it's just packed. I think that was the number, I think to this day that there was the most people that were ever in that stadium. Um, you know, we get to the sideline and, my heart's beating 200 beats a minute and on our sideline are all the hurricane legends, the Michael Irvins, the Edron James, the, the Ray Lewis's and Shaq and D Wade are on the sideline. Cause that's back in, when they were there and like Jay-Z and other celebrities are on the sideline. I'm like, Holy, this is what college football is like. Like I thought football was big in Texas, but this is a, a new experience. And, I remember the first play of the game and even watching film the next day, the camera's like shaking. That's how loud it is in the orange bowl is even when you're watching film, that's moving and the ground felt like it was mumbling a little bit. Like that's how loud it was in there. And that was just uh, you know, I tell that story a lot um, because it was just, you know, such a, such a big moment. <laughs> it's probably one of the biggest moments I remember in my entire NFL career was, that first play. Um, and thankfully our, we have a smart coordinator that gave me a chip for my first ever play. So I didn't have to go one-on-one -on -one my very first play, but, uh, and then I kind of settled into the game and went from there, but it was, uh, and unfortunately we lost, but that was still a, uh, incredible experience. So you started 
47 games over the course of your career at the U. I think you're one of the, you're in the top five, I think, in history of all players at, at the school, I believe, in the most starts. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, you're getting beat up. I can't imagine, first of all, I can't imagine playing football. I cannot imagine being a lineman. I mean, my gosh, that, that physicality is at another level. So how do you keep yourself physically good enough, healthy enough to compete at that level for that long? Well, I think it's a lot of things. Uh, you know, the way, the way you train your body, but also the way you recover. And being young and in college had a lot to do with that. Um, you can get away with things that I couldn't get away with my last couple of years in the NFL. Like, you know, I used to rebound. I used to feel good like two days after a game in college. And, uh, you know, you know, when I was, you know, fifth or sixth year NFL veteran, I would feel good. I'll feel good again, like three months after the season. <laughs> like It's just cause it's just a constant, like aching everywhere. Um, so I, so I think, you know, I think youth had a lot to do with that, but just also the way you train as long as you push yourself, but also, uh, you know, you know, uh, input what you put in your body, what the amount of what food, you know, properly hydrated, the right supplements, you know, uh, that 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 sure helped me. Um, and you know, a, a lot of it's luck too, because you know I had some injury bug in the in the NFL. I, I was never able to piece together a full season. I always broke something or tore tore something else, but in college, I mean, if, if you can stay healthy, uh, or really just, just in general, if you can stay healthy, which is partly luck to make sure no one gets thrown into your knees or tackled into your ankle or something else, that, that goes a long way. So we'll get to the NFL in one second. Um, along that way, going in your sophomore year, there's a, there's a coaching transition. Randy Shannon comes in. What was that process like? I mean, you're still pretty young at that time. Maybe you didn't know any better or, or – Maybe you were just focused on what you had to do, but that obviously wasn't part of the plan that coach Coker would be gone and a new guy would come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I loved coach Coker. Um, and so it was, it was tough to see him, uh, you know, leave the program, but, um, you know, coach Shane and I had a good relationship and I, I was, I was pumped for him and, uh, what he could bring uh, to the team. And, you know, he had definitely a, a, a different mentality. Like I said, Coach Coker was a very much a player's coach. Shannon was very much a disciplinarian. I mean, he was, he was kind of, he ran a tight ship. And I mean, if you had, if someone left a towel out in the locker, it was bad news. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a much different atmosphere. Um, but like I said, I, I enjoyed playing for, for Shannon as well. Um, you know, unfortunately with both, we didn't win as many games as, you know, I would hope to, you know, but, uh, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say besides. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why we'll move on to the NFL in a second, but why do you think, you're a you guy, you bleed orange and green. Why do you think the program was in a rut at that time? What, what happened? Do you think? Yeah, I could speculate on a lot of different things. Um, you know, uh, 
I just don't think we ever put it together at the right time. Ultimately, um, you know, my freshman year, we weren't very good on offense. We were historically uh, one of the worst offensive teams and in, in history and our defense was incredible. We had, you know, uh, Kenny Phillips, Brandon Mayweather, uh, Barack Atkins, uh, Calais Campbell, John Beeson, Tavares Gooden. I mean, we had talent all over the field on defense and we were losing games like nine to seven because, I mean, we just, our defense did their job and just on offensively, we were we struggled to put up numbers. And then my senior year, we had more yards. We had the most yards out of any Miami hurricane team, except for the 2001 team, which is a pretty impressive team. And so, but we were losing games, you know, 42 to, you know, 52. I mean, it was just, we just, had, you know, I think my senior year offense with my fresh, with our freshman year defense, I think that could have been a special team, but uh, you know, that's what makes football so great is there's a lot of pieces and they all have to fit together at the right time. But um, yeah. And then it's, I don't know. I, there, there's times I, I look back at it and, and wish I would have, said more, did more, spoke up about a certain thing, but uh, it just, you know, winning and losing are both contagious. And when you start losing a couple games, it's easier to stay in that pattern. But when you're winning, it seems to get easier too. And fortunately we stayed in the loser's bracket a few too many times. Last question about your time as a Kane, although we could talk a long time about that because you're one of the greatest University of Miami Hurricanes in history. Um, the idea of swag, which is a cornerstone of the program, cornerstone of the athletes who want to come to the program. But when we're losing, man, it's not a good look, you know? So <laughs> what, how do you, how do you balance that? I mean, what do you, what do you think, uh, how would you advise coach Diaz today? If you could go talk to the players today, how would you counsel them on how to, uh, on, on that you know that's one of the most when I was there some former player made a comment and actually several of them did and I don't remember who it was so like these guys they don't play with enough swag and that was all that was talked about that season is we don't play with enough swag um, and I'll admit growing up watching the Canes like that was amazing and watching clips like I don't remember from the 80s I'm not you know you know old enough but seeing all the clips and what they used to do like that was amazing that made the canes so much fun to watch and you know it kind of gives people energy where you can feed off of it um now a lot of those things aren't weren't aren't legal now you can't stand over somebody and flex or dance or do all these things like we would have got you know, it would have been the 91 Cotton Bowl all over again. Um, but, you, you know, there's a, there's a fine line with it. Like, you know what, you know what swag is, is confidence. And you go, you, you don't hope to win, you expect to win. And, you know, when you have that. I mean, what the Patriots had for such a long time or what Alabama's playing with, you see some other, like they don't, they're, they're going into the game, not hoping for anything. 
like it's how much are we going to win by and that's the type of attitude and it, i think that's where really swag kind of like comes from is that attitude piece and um i don't know it just you know it's it's uh and you think that was missing when you were there well it, it just felt fake not no i don't i, I don't want to like I don't want to like bash anybody that I played with or any of the players. Now it's just, here's the difference between dancing at the end of a play and the kind of the attitude and confidence is like, we're going to win no matter what. Right. And instead of like, uh, you know, just doing something to do it and look cool and have armbands. It's just, there's a different mentality. Um, and, and nothing against armbands or nothing against any of the guys I played with. I played with a lot of really great people uh, on both sides of the ball uh, that, that could do it. It's just, it's hard to have swag when you're not winning. I guess that's the best way to, to say it. You need to, once the team starts getting in a, a pattern of winning and getting into a rhythm of winning and start having that confidence, that's what that's what breeds swag. Anything else other than that is artificial. So you get drafted in, by the Lions in 2010, and tell me about that day. So how do you find out, and what's your reaction? Oh man, uh, you know, leading up to that, uh, you know, I uh, my. You know, junior and senior seasons, you know, I was I was hoping to be a top pick, uh, like, like you said, 47 games. But in my last game, I, uh, you know, tore my patella tendon in my left knee. I missed the bowl game my senior year. And, you know, that's not a it's not a something I would advise if you're trying to go in the first couple of rounds is, it, you know, it's such a, a meat market to these guys of are we going to take a player with, you know, two fully healthy legs? Or are we going to come up, take a guy that's straight off knee surgery and that, that causes you to fall. But uh, by God's grace, I was still drafted in the fourth round. And you know, if you would have told me I'd been drafted in the fourth round during my senior season, I probably wouldn't have been too pumped about it. But on draft day, I didn't care. It was, it was a dream come true. It was, it was uh, just kind of that realization from six years old. I told you about kind of a, literally a lifelong dream. Um, and I took it as, as an opportunity. It was a foot in the door. Um, you know, I was now going to be a professional football player, which, you know, it was, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around at the time. It was just, it was such a, an amazing day. Uh, I got, got the call in the fourth round and, um, I, I was, I don't know. It was just an amazing, amazing day. And so on draft day, were you, were you fully recovered? Were you still rehabbing? I mean, how? How close were you to being back? I, I was still rehabbing. Uh, you know, I, you know, I couldn't even work out at a lot of, I didn't work out at the combine. Uh, you know, I bench pressed, that was it. And at pro day, I'll tell you another quick story. I, I tore my hamstring trying to run the 40 because that was the first. So I like, not only do I have a messed up, not fully recovered knee, I have a torn hamstring now that, you know, that happened a couple of weeks before the draft. And so, uh, 
you know, the Lions said, hey, you know, we're not drafting you for this year. We see that this is a, is a long time, is a long time pick. So just focus on getting healthy. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that was kind of the focus on getting healthy was was tough. I just spent most of my NFL career hurt at one, in one way or another. But, uh, you know, I don't have any regrets. It was an amazing six years. Um, you know, I met a lot of great people, a lot of great coaches. I uh, had, you know, lifelong me- memories made. And so it was, unfortunately, I could never knock the, the injury bug, but that's part of it. And so could you, and I'm sure this is probably not something you like to talk about, but I mean, just to give us context on that. So you have these injuries at the beginning of your career and then you start to play and then something happens, right? I mean, can you walk us through kind of just the pervasiveness of these injuries? Yeah. And, you know, I never been hurt before is, is, is weird as that is to say, like in high school, I, you know, I, I might, you know, nick something or kind of tweak something, but no, no, nothing really that required surgery. And now I'm recovering from a, a, t- a surgery that typically takes about a year to recover from. And I had the surgery in you know, either December, I think December. Um, but, you know, I, I was just kind of like, it'll get better. And I kept, I wanted to play. I kept pushing through it, ended up re-hurting it my rookie year training camp. So I missed a lot of that season, ended up coming back and playing in like the last six games. Um, so I got at least some playing time my rookie year, which was, which was good. My second year, uh, ended up, um, you know, tearing something in my foot during training camp again, missed half the season, came back, then, uh, tore up, tore my MCL. So I missed a lot. I only played a little bit my second year, my third year, I remained, you know, mostly healthy, uh, but, you know, played sparingly. I was the swing tackle for a lot of the season and only got, you know, only got uh, some action. I, didn't, I, I don't remember how many games I started that year, not many. And then my fourth year, first game of the season, I, I, I tear my groin, come back, play a little bit more after that, but just could never stay fully healthy. And then I went to the Dolphins, um, end up having – you know, hurting my other knee, tearing calves, uh, concussions, you know, hurting shoulders, breaking elbows. <laughs> like it's just a violent game. And I think my body was, you know, maybe not as tough as I thought it was anymore. Or uh, it just, just couldn't, couldn't get fully around the corner. And what would the doctors tell you? Cause I'm sure you would, I can't imagine the level of frustration because you're a world ca- world-class athlete who's always had success and never been hurt. And now your entire NFL career, at least for some part of the season, you're injured. So what are the doctors telling you? Why is this happening? Um, you know, I think it was just a lot of bad luck. <laughs> and it's not as what I want to blame on luck. Uh, you know, if you, you know, with if it's a soft tissue, which I had several, torn groins, calves, you know, a lot of that can be uh, if you're hydrated that lowers the chance of that happening. If you're, uh, if you've trained really well and in the right way that can prevent a lot of soft tissues. But unfortunately, most of the injuries I dealt with, um, you know, were just, 
you know, freak moments. You know, I tore my MCL and, you know, a, a body got thrown into my knee when I was blocking somebody. It's, it's, it's tough to, you can do, you can't do much about that. Um, you know, I tore the thing in my foot as, you know, someone got tackled into my foot right when I was, when it was planted and I'm, you know, blocking somebody. So uh, things like that, those are just part of the game and they're not unique to me. Like injury rate in college and the NFL is hundred percent. Like people get hurt. And even the, even the time where you're not missing games, you're hurt. Like you have something hurting most of the time, multiple things hurting. Uh, you know, what I think makes, you know, take a little pressure off me, like Calvin's so amazing. Like Calvin Johnson, who I played with for four years, it just got into the hall of fame. He would, he had so many things wrong with his body. He had broken fingers. He had messed up knees, you know, hands, feet, you know, shoulders killing him. And he would go on and play football on Sunday. Like, he's never felt better. And it was just so impressive to watch because he'd be double, triple covered. And, he'd, you know, he, he can barely walk up a flight of stairs The you know, but he just was able, that's what, that's what makes players great. And, uh, you know, that's what his, his greatness really came through. So it's not fully unique that to me is like, Hey, I had bad luck. It's just, you know, how severe and when you get them and how much you can play through is those are as much part of the, part of the equation as anything. I mean, but how do you mentally continue? Because, you know, the first year you're probably like, all right, I'm going to get over this. Some bad luck. I'm going to get through it. Year two, maybe the same thing. But by year three, year four, you got to be like, what is going on? Why am I doing this? Like, what is your, what is your mentality? How do you keep going? Um. you know, like keeping going was easy because it's, it's what, what I wanted to do. Right. It was my goal. I wanted to play football for as long as I could. It was frustrating. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, even going was easy, but uh, you know, keeping positive thoughts about it wasn't because it's just, you know, there were several years I was the day one starter and, you know, expected starter literally started game one and then something happened. Um, which it, which is tough because you want to play uh, as a, as a competitor, you want to play as a teammate, you want to be there, um, you know, for your team. And, you know, it, it, it stinks like lo losing still stinks when you're injured or hurt, but like winning, it's like, it, it, it feels as awesome because you're part of the team, but you weren't out there and it just, you wanted to, you know, you wanted to really feel a part of it. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was tough. I, you know, I just try to keep, surrounding myself with positive thoughts and, you know, keep telling myself that I would get back out there and, you know, that I would heal. And it, you know, the, that it just wasn't my time right now, but uh, it, it wasn't easy. When did you get your MBA? When I went back, so after uh, my contract, I signed two contracts with the Lions. I did a three-year deal after being drafted. Then I did a fourth round tender. After that, after that second contract expires, I was free agent, went down to Miami. And right when I got down there, the NFL announced a uh, MBA program in select colleges, uh, you know, that, you know, that the NFL would pay for and that they were sponsoring even a few programs. And there was one at the University of Miami. Uh, 
And I was like, man, I, after all these injuries I've had, eventually one day I'll have my last injury and hopefully I'll play for another two, three, four, five years. But, you know, I need to start preparing for the next phase of life. And, you know, I think NBA could go a long way. I had a lot of ideas, a lot of ambitious ideas of what the next phase of life could look like. And I was like, man, especially if, uh, I mean, it just felt like the stars were aligning a little bit because I'm back in Miami. I'm already familiar with the University of Miami. I got my undergrad there. There's a chance to go back there. Uh, I'm already here to get my MBA and the NFL is going to pay for it. You know, why wouldn't I take advantage of that? And so for the off seasons in 2015 and 16, I went back and uh, got my MBA. What were, what were some of your ideas at that time? You said you had ideas of things you wanted to do when you, uh, when you were done with your career, NFL career. Well, one of them led to what I'm doing now. It's called earbuds. I can tell you about that. But I had, I have a, a very entrepreneurial mind and I think of a new business idea almost daily, if not week, you know, or daily or weekly. You know, most of them probably not any good. But I had several that were very top of mind, but I was most, most passionate about what I'm doing now, earbuds. Well, obviously, that's a big company. I think you've raised a couple million dollars for it, I believe, right? And tell me if it's mm -hmm. more than that, but that's what I, my research came across. So tell us what it is and how you're doing. Yeah. So what earbuds does actually was inspired from my time in the NFL. Um, you know, my second year, the very first game of the season we played against Carolina and Cam Newton had just been drafted number one overall and watching him warm up before the game while I was doing a super boring lineman stretcher team. He just had his headphones on and he was dancing and he was jamming and, you know, getting ready for the game. And I was curious what he was listening to, but I figured I wasn't the only one with all the people in the stadium, all the millions of people watching at home. You know, he's an individual with millions of social media followers. Like, you know, how many people would love to be in his headphones uh, listening along with them? Uh, and that was just an idea I never got out of my head and you'd see guys in the locker room or getting off the bus and they post screenshots of their music to social, get massive responses or see bows or beats doing campaigns around guess what's in my headphones and kind of seeing the evolution of um, social media go from posting to sharing. And I was like, man, there's an opportunity here. And I remember in 2016, my last year, uh, watching the summer Olympics with Michael Phelps, I don't know if you remember that moment, but uh, it was the number one thing trending worldwide on Twitter is what's Phelps listening to with 23 million tweets asking him that. And I said, man, there's an opportunity. There's a market here. And so that's that's what we've created, uh, you know, really a social platform around music at the center of it, but really around audio. So what we do is we allow you to tune in and listen along with anyone uh, in, in whether they're listening to Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, or Amazon now, Amazon soon. Um, we, we allow you to listen along with them in real time or, or afterwards, whether it's your favorite athlete, your favorite artist, or uh, someone in your life, uh, such as a coworker, or sister, or significant other, uh, and you can share music. Um, so we really want to be where we've seen a lot of uh, massive uh, awareness in the industry now around social audio with apps like clubhouse. We're trying to do something similar in the social music space. So that's really crazy. So you get the idea. 
I mean, it's from a collection of places, but it really crystallizes when you're watching Cam Newton warm up. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. I mean, I imagine most, and tell me if this is wrong, but I would imagine most of your fellow players probably were not coming up with business ideas while they're preparing for a game, I would think. Maybe that's why they were able to stay on the field uh, and not getting hurt. Uh, but yeah, it was just, it was an idea that popped in my head and not that I was trying to think of business ideas maybe in that moment, but, uh, it was just a thought that kind of evolved into, into more thoughts, which evolved into what earbuds is today. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're growing right now. We have the four largest, uh, you know, music streaming providers as partners for us. So there's no, no additional cost, and you can cross listen. Spotify users can listen along with Apple and everything else. We're the only provider agnostic. Uh, listening service and technology where your host can talk over their streams and interact. So, um, you know, we have a ton of already 200 plus verified profiles. Um, you know, the majority of them being athletes from, uh, you know, kind of the NFL, the Patrick Mahomes, the Baker Mayfields, the Rob Gronkowski's to NBA, UFC, PGA, like all down the list. And now you can tune in live listening with them whenever they're listening. <laughs> so, and how did you, um, I imagine you knew a lot of these guys already because you had access to them being an athlete and being friends of friends or being friends of theirs. I mean, how much did that help, do you think, uh, at the beginning? You know, actually, you know, out of the, the NFL players I mentioned, I only knew, I only knew Gronk. Uh, because we train together, you know, the, the, we have three NFL quarterbacks, um, that are active on the platform and I didn't know any of them when I started, it was just kind of, you know, they kind of gravitated towards it because they wanted to connect with their fans in a new way and a new moment, um, which is exciting for us that, you know, it kind of came organically. Uh, and the athlete thing, I get asked that question a lot. It's, it was very helpful in a lot of ways, um, I think it was, it was tougher in the beginning because yeah, from, from relationship kind of capital, it was, it was helpful because I could reach people. Um, but also when it came to building a team or fundraising or anything else, it was like, you're an athlete, you're not a, you know, tech, you know, you've never ran a tech company before. So why, why should I come work for you or why should I invest in your company? Which, was a challenge in the early days and you know something we've had to overcome did you ever is there was there ever like an investor meeting where you didn't feel like you were taken seriously because of the fact you were a former athlete i don't think they came out and said it but i think that was that was always uh i i definitely think it happened but i, I don't think you know it was ever yeah i don't think it was ever verbalized so how do you overcome that then how do you get past that perception? Well, I just told you I spent the majority of my NFL career trying to overcome injuries. So I, that, that's one of the, the reasons why I love sports so much, uh, and especially football. Like it's such a, um, whether it comes to overcoming adversity or you know, working together as a team and, you know, uh, you know, leadership and working with, you know, a group of very diverse and, you know, different backgrounds and kind of bunch of people doing a million different things all towards the same goal is like that. And so many others are a direct correlation with business. Right. And it teaches you so many valuable lessons that you can take into life or whatever the next 
you know, phase of life is. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I went back and got my MBA and I read so many of the books behind me to talk about how to, you know, launch technology. And, you know, I still fell flat on my face so many times in the process or screwed something up or, you know, butted my head against the wall, but you know, that, that's just part of it. You take it, you learn from it, you iterate and you move on and you, you keep going and you keep pushing forward. Um, and you know, we're, we're not at our final destination yet with earbuds, but you know, we're, 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 we're on the right path and we have a lot of, you know, great things that are great milestones that we've hit and, uh, you know, excited for the future for sure. One thing I think is crazy is that you said you are, you know, you, you, I'm an NFL veteran and that makes you sound like you're old, but you're like, how old are you? Like 32, 33, 32. Yeah. You're 32 years old. So, I mean, only in sports, you know, would you consider yourself like a grizzled veteran at the age of 32, you know? Uh, so, I mean, what, what is that like to get out of that mentality of being like, okay, I'm retired now I'm done too you're in a tech space and you're a young guy and mm -hmm. you're fighting to be taken seriously here. Yeah. I, I don't feel 32 uh, a lot of times, it, you know, this doesn't show up, but I have a lot of gray hair and a big bald spot in the back of my head. And, you know, my, a lot of my joints, as I've told you, shared the injuries. It's you know, getting out of bed in the morning. Sometimes I feel like I'm 60, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, I was, you know, I was uh, happy with, you know, the amount of time I played in the NFL, but I never got the the massive contract that everybody hears about. Um, and, and, you know, most don't. So I wanted to start preparing for, you know, for life after and uh, wanted to do something that I'm passionate about. And it just is like the same passion that I took into football. You know, I want to, you know, you know, our goal is to, you know, create the most compelling you know, digital music experience and change the way people experience music outside of the one-on-one -on -one relationship with their Spotify or Apple music accounts. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what, uh, that's what drives me. That's what drives our team. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, being taken seriously is you have to, you have to start succeeding or you have to start doing things right. And then you'll get people's attention. All right. So let's drill down on the business a little bit. So the way this business works, and I'll let you go in a second, because I know you got a million things to do, I'm sure. Um, these are, a this is a physical product, right? It's a physical product or no, it's not. It's an app. It's an app. So it's, uh, you download the, the earbuds app uh, and we're iOS right now. Android ships this month. It'll be around later this month. So uh, iOS or Android. Uh the new, it'll prompt you to sync your existing music service. You just sync your your Spotify or Apple Music account or whatever you have. It'll preload all your existing content, your favorite playlist, your your songs, your, your artists that you follow, any action that you can do within those existing apps, you can do within earbuds. We just lay a uh, you know a a social graft and kind of connected tissue across where you can share music through. DMs or you can tag people or you can listen together in real time or if you want to go back and see hey what were we listening to on the golf course yesterday you can go to someone's profile and listen along with them even if they have a different provider than you uh, so we're really that central social hub around around the content but we allow you to 
interact, engage, and you know, even talk over it, uh, which is which is fun. So, what were if we were to uh, look at your music listening from earlier today? Okay. What were you listening to? I was listening to country music today. Yeah, it, it it varies. I have the most eclectic taste in music. You know, I listen to everything from country music to rock to hip hop to you know, kind of worship music to just kind of whatever mood I'm in or whatever activity I'm doing it, there's, there's probably a different playlist for it. But what's cool is, you know, and I've heard this from so many people, like, you know, the majority of our users is, you know, I had a very, you know, I had probably five or six playlists, maybe 10 playlists, you know, before I started earbuds. And now I feel like I have hundreds of them because if I find a song or if I find a playlist on someone else that I like, I can quickly add that song to one of mine or save that entire playlist for, you know, an activity or kind of, mood or vibe that I'm, I'm in at the moment. So uh, it's been a great discovery tool for not only me, but for the majority of our users. And so where is it going? What do you want it to be? I want it to be the standard uh, of, of music uh, and, how, and how people share music. We are the, so uh, let me say it this way, 82% of music discovery still happens from your friends and social network the number one way people currently share music right now is texting screenshots. And so, because, you know, in our early days when we were on college campuses, you know, trying to get, you know, some beta users and it's like, Oh, this would be sweet. But my girlfriend has Apple music and I have Spotify. I'm like, Oh, that doesn't matter. It's like, wait, I literally text her or like you we hear buddies all the time. Like I have a group chat that we literally just text screenshots of music to all the time. And now this kind of removes that it removes all these, you know, uh, physical or, uh, you know, barriers if, if someone's, uh, you know, not, you know, with you or, you know, different streaming services or wherever that may be now, you know, now there's a platform to, you know, to connect around the music, which is what music is all about, bringing people together. Have you, uh, have you talked to Cam Newton, by the way, about this? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't, unfortunately. <laughs> I need to. Uh, he's probably heard about it. How many times I've dropped his name in the way of he's probably just gets tagged and uh, different things online, but hopefully and I, we definitely need to talk to him. He needs to be one of our ambassadors. We thank Jason Fox for joining the Miami Herbert huddle and wish him luck with earbuds. You can download the app in the Apple or Android app store by typing in earbuds, E A R B U D S into the search function. If you want more from our conversation or wish to see it in video form, you can find it on the Miami Herbert Business School YouTube channel. Just type in Miami Herbert Business School into the YouTube search bar and you'll find it. You don't have to be too resilient to make it happen. Jason Fox has an MBA from the Miami Herbert Business School. Visit herbert.miami.edu to learn more about the various degree programs that Miami Herbert offers. It's a brand new website, by the way. Very nice. The only constant in life is change. Change is a dynamic force that moves through everything, our personal lives, our professions, and the roiling markets of the world economy. How we adapt to this change and how we reinvent ourselves in response will define us, especially when that change produces a trial and the things required of us are so tough. Our city of Miami has shown resilience in the face of many trials and has used those moments to propel profound transformation. To harness the forces of transformation, 
We need to build resilient leaders who have the knowledge and courage to change everything. Here at the Miami Herbert Business School, we're preparing the next generation of leaders for the bright future that will lie ahead once this trial is passed. We're prepared to confront the unknown. And we're here to help you build your future. Jason Fox's story is a perfect origin story for an entrepreneur. And that's what the show is all about today. Resilience in the face of mounting odds and the ability to thrive and pivot. It's a pretty important part of sports, entrepreneurship, and business. And not everybody has those traits in them, but Jason clearly does. Coincidentally, Miami is one of the most entrepreneurial cities in America, and it is also being talked up all around the world right now as a potential new tech super hub. Now, whether that happens or not is to be determined, but it's certainly true that great entrepreneurs are being coached and trained right here today. So what sets an entrepreneur apart from the rest of society? To answer that question, we turn to Professor Susie Alvarez-Diaz from Miami Herbert Business School. The entrepreneur is a person who is resourceful above everything else. So they are able to persevere despite what the situation in front of them tells them. And that is a person who is able to hold a thought, a vision, um, a course of action in their mind, despite what the circumstances are telling them that they are living or enduring in the moment. I mean, how much, how much of it is about resilience, do you think? I would say 100%. There are so many people who claim that they want to be entrepreneurs and really have the best intentions, and they see people out there succeeding, and they're like, I can do that too. And they venture out into doing so, and when they hit the first pitfall or the first hurdle, they buckle. And that's really what differentiates the owner mindset, the entrepreneur mindset from the employee mindset. And the entrepreneur really, again, like I was telling you, holds that vision in their mind and they are very passionate about it and, and passionate in the sense of not just loving something. It's more passionate in the sense of they are willing to endure the hardship to get to the finish line. So Jason Fox, former UM football player, he was a top high school athlete, incredibly highly touted and recruited coming out of high school, uh, you know, very, very successful at the University of Miami. He assumed for that entire period, you know, he's going to go to the NFL, make a ton of money, be a top draft pick, and then he gets injured and things change. So is there a element of entrepreneurship that comes from, crisis or challenge or, um, you know, is there a story that you can maybe relate to Jason's story that you've heard? Well, I can tell you from experience and from living this, that there is a skill set that is created, it is honed, it is perfected in athletics, in dance, and in the military. And they have the same type of skill set, which lends beautifully to entrepreneurship. If you look at what they do day in and day out, okay, I, I mentioned to you already, these entrepreneurs are the ones that were able to hold a thought, a vision in their mind. If you take an athlete, if you take a performer, if you take someone who's in the military, they have a goal to meet. 
and they have to get there regardless of what the circumstances presented to them are. Okay, so if you are tired in the game and you are spent and you are out of gas, it doesn't matter. You have to get the ball across the field and across the, you know, across the line. Um, if you are in the military and you have a mission given to you, it does not matter that you are injured or you're bleeding or whatever, you gotta get it done. It's the same thing if you're a performer. If you have, um, if something hurts, if you are injured, if you have a wardrobe malfunction, you know what? The show must go on and you must smile through all of it because you are there to perform and get it done. It is the same thing in entrepreneurship. It is the same exact skill set. So these folks who transition, like Jason, the circumstances to him were that he was injured and that that career had to um, end. But he can translate those skills into entrepreneurship perfectly because he's able to do an, an iterative process, which is what entrepreneurship is. Take an athlete. They do the same exact skill, the same practice over and over again. Ordinary people would be bored. They would quit. They do that because they know that they are measuring it. They are data-driven. Can they go faster? Can they go farther? Can they hit harder? What can they do? So this is the same thing with entrepreneurship. So you are going for iterations of what you do every day to improve the outcome. So they're already built for that. Their mindset is already built for that. So again, it goes perfectly and transitions perfectly into entrepreneurship. You obviously teach students on a daily basis who many of which I imagine purport to be entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs, right? Yes. What do you tell them though? Because entrepreneurship is not for everyone. How do you try to weed them out or, or lead them one way or the other? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't weed them out. <laughs> That's up to them and life and their experience. Uh, I prepare them, okay? And if you want to look at it this way, I coach them, okay? So I prepare them. I put them through the paces of what they are going to encounter realistically in their life as an entrepreneur so that when they encounter their first hiccup, their first um, client that they lose, their first rejection, they don't fold. It's expected, it's par for the course. So I don't want them to be surprised. And this is, again, if you're looking at athletics, it's all about preparation. You're prepared, you're prepared to win. You're prepared to get out on the field and play. And this is what I do for my students, whether it's preparing them to, through the writing of business plans and analyzing their business opportunities and pouring through the financials. And again, back to that iterative process that I'm telling you and, and being very, very data focused. When you, I tell my students, when you look at your financials and you start working on those numbers and you change one number and it alters all these other ones, that's when you realize Every decision you make as an entrepreneur has an impact. So, you know, again, this lends to it, um, the fact that they have this, I, I believe that athletes, and like I said, and dancers and people in the military, they, they have had to endure this physical duress. And the only way that they are able to do this is by um, overcoming this through this mental fortitude that they have. Same thing for an entrepreneur. You work long hours. You work late nights, 
you stay up late because you're thinking of what you got to decide, what you got to do, how you're going to make payroll, how you're going to close that big deal, how you're going to be able to afford to expand, all these other things. And you're still, despite that, you have this mental fortitude to move forward and to reach your goals. So I, I, it's a natural thing, Rich. It's really very natural, that, that transition into entrepreneurship. Do you feel that entrepreneurship can be taught? I mean, obviously you can teach elements of entrepreneurship, but do you think that you can teach somebody to be an entrepreneur or ultimately do they have to have certain traits that can then be honed? What do you think? You can most certainly teach entrepreneurship. If you look back hundreds of years, people would learn, they would have an apprenticeship for some type of a trade. That's entrepreneurship. Okay. So they would learn their trade um, through a master who would teach them everything that had to do with uh, whether they were a blacksmith or whatever they, they worked on. They had to learn how to create that product and they would invent within that trade. Okay. That is part of entrepreneurship. And it most certainly can be taught. Would we argue that along, you know, many generations, there were people who were better at it than others? There were people who were constantly curious and wanted to come up with new solutions? Yes. And there were others who were content to just make their money and, and be happy at that? Absolutely. Okay. So there are many degrees of that, but that doesn't discard the fact that they are, in fact, entrepreneurs and it can be taught if the, if the person is willing to learn. Okay, and that I think is um, the difference between entrepreneurs and, and great entrepreneurs. I believe great entrepreneurs are the ones who are always asking the questions, wanting to learn, um, making connections with people who are doing great things in their field and they wanna learn how they did it and they wanna learn how to improve what they're currently doing. So that I think is what differentiates the entrepreneur from the great entrepreneur. Well, that's it for this episode of the Miami Herbert Huddle. Thanks again to Jason Fox and Susie Alvarez-Diaz for being our guests. So be sure to subscribe to our feed on your favorite podcast app in order to get it in the future. And also be sure to rate and even give a review of the show if you have a few seconds. You can listen to it together on earbuds. It's very exciting, folks. Very exciting. The producer of the Miami Herbert Huddle is Marlene Lee Bish. Special thanks to Dean John Quelch and Vice Dean's Henrik Kronkvist and DJ Nanda. Additional production support is provided by Rise News Brand Studio. I'm Rich Robinson, and we'll see you next time in the Miami Herbert Huddle.